Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. When a current or former American president passes away, what does How the Nation Mourns tell us about who we are as a people? We'll join a renowned presidential historian to discuss this topic, but first, hello history lovers and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, and a special tip of the hat to everybody enjoying today's time travel adventure via our YouTube channel. You can find me at historyauthor.com and across social media platforms, plus you can read my columns in the New York Sun to get my analysis of current events through the lens of what I've learned from all of these books on the shelves behind me. In this episode, our time machine welcomes back somebody whose books appear twice because she's only had two books, but they're both great, on my shelf. She's Dr. Lindsay M. Shervinsky, and she's here to chat about her new book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. It's co-written with Matthew R. Costello, and it includes observations of several other scholars. They bring to life a vision shared by the White House Historical Association and the Southern Methodist University Center for Presidential History, where Dr. Shavinsky is a senior fellow. And that's in addition to her responsibilities teaching about the presidency at the School of Media and Public Affairs at George Washington University. Well, with a resume like that, you know why I am disappointed she only has two books, but I know many more great ones are to come. You'll learn about and hear about another one today, her latest one. Dr. Shervinsky last joined us for one of my first video interviews, and that was to discuss a book you can see if you're watching on YouTube right here behind me on the shelf. It's called The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution. That book earned the Daughters of the American Revolution's Excellence in American History Book Award and the Thomas J. Wilson Memorial Prize. So I'm not the only one who loved it. You can find our guest at lindsayshervinsky.com or across social media platforms. We will link to all of her social media and to her website and our previous interview at thehistoryauthor.com page for this episode. So you can do some one-stop shopping right there and we'll take you wherever you want to be. You can also subscribe to Dr. Shervinsky's email newsletter. It's called Imperfect Union. I get a lot of spam and I get a lot of emails from places that I say, I just can't read that one today. I'm always sure to click and check out Imperfect Union whenever it shows up in my inbox. Okay, now that we've prepared for the reckoning and reflection that greets the death of a chief executive, whether sudden or long after they've retired from public life, let's join Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky and discuss Mourning the Presidents. And here we are with Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky. She's joining us to chat about her new book, Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. Welcome back to the History Author Show. Thanks so much for having me back. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm thrilled to have you. As you can see, the cabinet still has a place of honor on the shelf behind me right next to Mourning the Presidents. These are good books you write and ones that, much like something you might hear in a eulogy, they really stick with you and make you reflect. You open Morning the Presidents with a passage from John Adams. He's writing at the time to his fellow former president, Thomas Jefferson, and he says, grief drives men into habits of serious reflection, sharpens the understanding, and softens the heart. 
So I wanted to start with a question to you about what is it that inspired you to go through this reflection and look at this theme of how the nation chooses to remember its chief executives and what that tells us about the American Republic and all of us as their heirs. Well, I love that that opening passage that Colleen Shogun selected, and I'm so glad that she did because I think it does really capture the conundrum of trying to remember and mourn and reflect on presidents and how it's not always a smooth or easy or chronologically one-line process. Matthew Costello, my co-editor, and I, we decided to embark on this project after watching the response to President George H.W. Bush's funeral. And the reflections about his presidency, his legacy, who he was as a man, really centered on his kindness, his decency, his humility, the stability he brought to the world stage. And while I think all of those things are true, uh, at least based on the conversations that I've had with people who knew him, they seemed to almost reflect more about where we were as a nation and what the American people were hungry for, what they wanted, as opposed to necessarily what he should be remembered for in the history books. And those comments seem to suggest that the American people wanted a time when politics was a little bit more gentle, when the American position on the international stage was more stable, and when the presidency was something that people could kind of gather around as a unifying force. And so we decided to explore whether the reaction to Bush 41's death was unique in that way, or whether presidential deaths and the American response to them can tell us something about where the nation is at every single time that it happens. Yeah, it makes me think that it's something we do with many people where, or anybody, I guess, who dies, we usually idealize them. And and it's natural too. And it's it's a nice thing, really, because you look at a lot of things today and we're picking the worst moments of, of everybody, <laughs> their worst, absolute worst day. And when a president dies, there has been this impulse that you cover here throughout mourning the presidents where you look at them and you say, those best qualities, we, we look at them in a different way or, or try to, and no matter who they are throughout history, having having read your book and read about it myself, we always try to find those really good things. And I think that's something wonderful and, and really aspirational that we have. When we learned President Carter went into hospice care, for instance, I wrote in the New York Sun that the prohibition of speaking ill against the dead has disappeared about 280 characters at a time on Twitter. And I feel as if you could tell us right now, why do you think readers should pick up Morning the President to reflect on our president's lives and to look at them as the office, not the man, that, that old phrase that we used to say. Why is that important? Why did you hope people would pick it up and learn a little something better when we do lose a president? Well, I guess that I was hoping that people would see that there have been these extreme moments of chaos before and that the presidency, especially when a president dies, it is an opportunity to find something to hold together, to find something that can be a unifying point for all American people. So one example in the book that I particularly like is when Zachary Taylor died. He was kind of a, a very average, very meh president, and everyone at the time kind of knew that. And yet the country was going through this very intense sectional crisis in that they were trying to decide what to do with slavery and whether slavery should expand into the new territories that were acquired during the Mexican-American War. And Taylor had done nothing, intentionally done nothing to help that process. And so instead of reflecting on the fact that he was kind of useless when it came to that challenge, 
they instead decided to celebrate his military service during the Mexican-American War because it was a, a central unifying point to provide some cohesion during this moment of, of real intense partisan and sectional strife. And so I think that the presidency at its best does have the potential to serve as that that force for Americans and uh, is something that we should, I think, strive for when we can. I want everybody listening and watching to know that this is not merely a how-to for presidential eulogies because presidents are just like one of us. And it's something that I say again and again, I love that about our republic. And you write in Morning the Presidents that some presidents did have detailed plans, Herbert Hoover and Bush 41, you were just mentioning, they had detailed plans for what they wanted. Others like FDR didn't, which is surprising since he knew that his time was running out. JFK, it's understandable that he thought he had many, many years to come and, and of course did not. So what factors influence who has those funeral preparations, who has that say if a president does pass away, especially in cases when there's no first lady there, who decides what, what is appropriate pageantry, what is appropriate eulogizing for a president that passes away suddenly or that leaves no plan behind and says, I'll leave it to you guys? Well, this process has shifted a lot over time as the trappings of the federal bureaucracy have expanded, as the government has expanded, and as you know, sort of the different elements of what it means to have a state funeral have, have evolved over time. So George Washington, of course, to start, he had laid out sort of a very detailed but very simple plan. He wanted just a family service at his home. He wanted to be buried with relatively simple um, sort of customs and observations. And he didn't really get his way because the people around him, both in his home and his family, but also in the surrounding areas, wanted to participate and demanded and sort of forced themselves into the process. And then Congress and communities across the country took up the mantle and decided that they too would throw some sort of mock funeral or some sort of celebration to mourn Washington. And so in his case, he's sort of unusual in that he did lay out a plan and everyone just said no, <laughs> said that, you know, he belongs to the American people. He doesn't just belong to himself or his family. After Washington, it's usually the person and their family if they live throughout the presidency. So, of course, it depends on when does a person die. If they die in office, that's going to look different than if they die decades later. Uh, so the president is always a person that usually has a say if there is a plan, the first family, of course. And then increasingly over time, as we have the creation of the concept of a state funeral, which I think really started with Lincoln and then again with FDR and Kennedy and then really has become the norm now. Presidents have a plan from pretty much the first day in office. It is almost a requirement for them to establish what they would like to have happen if they do die in office. And then, of course, it continues to evolve once they leave office. And so Bush 41 uh, in, in that chapter, which uh, was written by Warren Finch, he describes how Bush would have regular meetings like monthly meetings to sort of update this plan, which he didn't particularly like. And that was kind of annoying. Uh, but was willing to do because it was important and it was essential. And as long as people didn't ask him to define what his legacy would be, he was willing to have those conversations. It makes me think of Jefferson as well, saying, well, I don't even want president on my gravestone. I want these three other things uh, about his accomplishments, Declaration of Independence, the Virginia Charter, and I guess founding the University of Virginia, was it? 
And so yeah, it was, um, <laughs> let's see, it was the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, the founder of UVA, and the author of the Declaration of Religious Freedom. He dies, he has those those requests, and everybody ignores it. He ends up getting a monument just the same. And you mentioned George Washington, so I wanted to bring that up because you did discuss throughout your book, the cabinet, that he set the precedent for so many things, including the cabinet, things that we just take for granted today. Wake up one day and just, oh, okay, the president has a cabinet, and that's one of those things. And this brings me to a question from your fellow presidential historian, Louis Pacone, who I interviewed about all of his books, including Grant's Tomb, The Epic Death of Ulysses S. Grant, and The Making of an American Pantheon. Also, The President is Dead, The Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond. So this book follows on that theme more scholarly because there's more of you contributing. But I want to roll Louis Pacone's video question here and get your reaction to it. Congratulations, Lindsay, to you and Matthew Costello and each of the contributors on your wonderful book, Mourning the Presidents. In George Washington's will, he requested no funeral oration, which I feel was, at least in part, due to his strong sense of small-r Republican virtues. And John Quincy Adams once wrote, democracy has no monuments. My question to you, Lindsay, is what do you think the founders would think? of how presidential mourning and memorialization have evolved throughout American history. I'm thinking of examples such as Lincoln's 20-day funeral, Grant's tomb, and the modern multi-day funeral pageant for presidents. Thank you, and best of luck on your book. Well, thank you so much to Liz for that question. I really appreciate it and appreciate him reading the book as well. Uh, you know, it's always, as he knows, and as you know, it's always tricky to say the founders would think anything because they disagreed on almost everything. Uh, I think some like Alexander Hamilton, may have been okay with more of the pageantry and the flair and the pomp and circumstance. I think others like George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson would be extremely uncomfortable where we have traveled to as a nation because the ceremonies that we now have regularly for former presidents are not all that dissimilar from the ceremonies that occur when a monarch dies in England. They are about the life of a person rather than the deeds or their time in office. They treat the president as though they are somehow above or something greater than just an average citizen. And I think that would make them really uncomfortable. I think that would make them question kind of what we're doing and why we're treating the president as though it is this sort of extra legal body. Now, I think they might give an exception if a president were to die in office, because then it is truly the head of state dying in office. Um, but, you know, given that they didn't write about it, that's kind of my best guess for what they might have said. Interesting that you say that they didn't write about it, because I would think with so much death that they would think about it. And, and certainly in our culture today, we we reflect endlessly on death and we think about it. And here you've written a book on mourning the presence because we have much more length of time in the in the uh for the republic obviously they were just starting out so they didn't they couldn't reflect and but but they also didn't for such forward-looking people they didn't really think about that it is interesting to me so that that's the case well they certainly thought about their own death and they reflected on those around them i guess i mean that they didn't know what was coming and so they couldn't really predict that but i think perhaps the closest example 
that we can look to in terms of the evidentiary record occurs when Washington dies. And initially, John Adams and Abigail Adams, they say all the right things and do all the right things. And there's an official mourning period and they wear the mourning clothes and they attend the congressional service to have sort of a mock funeral for Washington and they attend the orations. And then Congress decides that Washington's birthday. So, of course, Washington dies in December. His birthday is in February. They decide that February is going to be an official day of mourning. So they attend that oration as well. And at this point, they've had three months of mourning activities, three months of reading orations, of listening to orations, of reading descriptions of Washington. And they start to get a little frustrated because the descriptions of Washington are so over the top, are so gratuitous, are so fawning that it makes him sound like he was this godlike figure. And don't get me wrong, Washington was extraordinary. He did extraordinary things. But what they basically said was his record as it was, was so amazing that it didn't require any of this exaggeration. And in doing so, it was almost a disservice to who he was and his memory because it made it sound like you had to exaggerate in order to celebrate him. And then they started to feel like after three months, Abigail does make this hint that has there ever been three months of celebration for anyone in history? And she's <laughs> like, I don't think there has. So you can see that they start to get really uncomfortable with it. And I think that leads me to believe they would therefore be very uncomfortable with some of the pomp and circumstance. An uh, interesting part of Morning the Presidents that strikes me right there when you're speaking about Washington and those orations is it's also natural for people to try to one up each other and to make a funeral and when someone dies about themselves. So that's a nice through thread that we had just as many people back at the in the founding generation that were a little self-absorbed. They might not have had Instagram, but they were self-absorbed and they would try to top each other. And I think that's an interesting theme is your book is focused on our reaction, but on who the presidents were and that you mourn them throughout. Were there any of those that you found from the from the founding generation that you think gave a really good eulogy or remembered a predecessor, especially those who who died suddenly, who who did the best job? I don't want to put you on the spot, but who who did the best job when it came to remembering a former president that you thought for their time struck the right note? Yeah, it's a great uh, it's a great question. So perhaps the most famous oration is the one given by um uh, Henry Harry Lighthorse Lee, who had served, he was in Congress when Washington died, but he had served with Washington during the revolution. And so his oration is perhaps the best known. But what I find most fascinating is he gave the line that that is perhaps best remembered. He gave it to John Marshall. He slid it to him as soon as they received news from uh, Mount Vernon that Washington had died. And when they came back into session the following Monday. John Marshall, who was serving in the House of Representatives at the time, put forth a series of proposals for how they should go about commemorating him. And he said that 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 famous line, uh, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of our countrymen. And that is the line that I think sticks the most and is the most accurate description for who Washington was for the duration of his lifetime. He was so unparalleled in stature, so unparalleled in reputation, and so unparalleled in public trust for most of his life that that doesn't you know, deny his flaws. It doesn't exaggerate his record. It's just a really honest statement of fact about who he was and what he meant to the nation. And brevity is something I think we overlook too for funerals and mourning the presidents. 
covers this, the idea of focusing that message. Sometimes if you can get it down to those eight words, it's better than going on and on. And as I was formulating that, I was going to say, like the guy who spoke before Lincoln at the Gettysburg Address and went on for an hour <laughs> and a half. And I, and I realized just the fact that I referred to him as the guy who was before Lincoln shows how sometimes speaking all the words can not can be just as bad as going on as as not saying anything at all or saying the wrong thing. So I, I like that about mourning the presidents. Absolutely. I, I think that's just right. I, I wanted to ask, though, we talked about the funerals that are really overblown, but have there been any funerals that made you cringe that you think and and a person that, that served as our commander in chief deserved a little bit better? And I'm thinking of Martin Van Buren, who you cover in Morning the Presidents, where the nation kind of just tossed him in the ground. And even though he has that humble little gravesite up in Kinderhook, New York, you think, well, maybe the guy deserves a little bit better obelisk. Maybe they could have made a little bit better effort and there was good reason why they didn't but were there, were there any uh, any of the presidents that you felt hey, they're on the other end of the spectrum this guy deserved a mm -hmm. little bit better than the quick and done he got yeah well you know it's hard to say because the the sort of the standard practice for most of the 18th century with the exception of presidents like lincoln and grant to a certain extent of course he had a little bit more fanfare because of his military service and then garfield who died in office for most of the century, it was it was pretty modest, and that was the expectation. The one that I think um, the fanfare of the ceremony was not necessarily commensurate to the extent of his public service and the dramatic way that he died. And if I should say, as an aside, um, if I could go back and and do one thing differently in this volume, I would include this chapter. So, as a as a side note or as additional material, I think that John Quincy Adams gets short shrift. And when we were putting this volume together, I was finishing the cabinet and I was in that stage where you're copy editing and like you hate every word and you never want to write another book and you're just like kind of miserable. And uh, Matthew asked me, he's like, do you want to write a chapter? And I was like, no, I never want to write again, which obviously <laughs> did not happen. But um, I, I now I wish that I could go back and write that chapter. Um, but he died. Basically, he had a stroke while he was giving a speech on the floor of the House of Representatives. And he lingered for several days. He died in the Capitol. This was after he was president. He then went on to serve this incredible congressional career as a stalwart force against the slave power in the South. Um, and I think his, his services ended up being fairly modest because that's actually who he was. But he had basically been in public service since he was 12. And he deserved, I think, all of the fanfare. Maybe another case of being outshined by your father people somehow felt well we did that already for for another john adams and 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 also well not to get off on a on a quincy sidetrack here but he did so much it's hard to hold it all in your brain and i'm sure that there maybe was a I little know. jealousy and they just uh they just wanted to be wanted to be done with him especially with him hectoring so much of the country at the time over slavery which was just great <laughs> when you when you go back and read it yeah. with an eye for justice he, he just pulled the punches got to love that so that, that's an interesting choice uh, i wanted to ask you about president carter who of course at 98 years old has gone home for his final days you talk about those eulogies too long too short missed the mark in mourning the presidents and if somebody asked you now that you're an expert on it you and your co-authors 
what what advice would you give somebody who is going to have that titanic task of speaking on behalf of the 39th president's life and trying to describe that hyphen between the year of his birth and the year of his death? Yeah, it's it's quite a task. I guess that I what I would encourage people to do as they think about who Carter was and how he served, and I think that this applies to his presidential service as well as his public service and his commitment to sort of humanitarian values for the duration of his life, is to try and make the services, to try and make the oration, to try and make that entire experience an embodiment of those values as a final way to demonstrate what Carter stood for which was humility, civility, uh, a commitment to public service. I think he lived his Christian ethos. He, I think, was a better president than people give him credit for. He wasn't a great salesman. He wasn't a very good, always a very good communicator. So he didn't do a great job necessarily of claiming credit for the things that he did. And his successor, Ronald Reagan, I think gets credit for a lot of the things that he did do because Reagan was such a great communicator. But I think that if they can focus on those things, it will remind Americans or try to remind Americans in this sort of tense moment that we're in, um, what maybe we want the president to be, what values do we care about? What do we need in the presidency as opposed to some of the maybe showier, flashier qualities that we sometimes want or crave? And um, what standard should we hold the president to? I think that the if someone has this task, which I do, again, I do not envy them because this is a very difficult task, but uh, trying to remind Americans that of, of what the potential of that position and what it can do and what Carter tried to do with it and with his life, I think would be the ultimate goal. You're enjoying my conversation with Dr. Lindsay M. Shervinsky about her book, Mourning the President's Loss and Legacy in American Culture. You can find her across social media platforms or online at lindsaystravinsky.com, where you can subscribe to her email newsletter, which is called Imperfect Union. Isn't that a great title? And by the way, I read every one. I get a lot of spam emails, Thank but I do, I, I do get excited every time I see Imperfect <laughs> <Thank> Union. <you. laughs> we'll link to all of those at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. You can find everything you need right there. Pulitzer Prize-winning presidential historian John Meacham calls Mourning the President's, quote, a valuable volume on meaning and memory. By exploring the public reactions to the deaths of several American presidents, the editors and contributors shed light on the shifting legacies of our national leaders and on the often complicated feelings of the dead. I want to focus on those often complicated feelings and what a, what a great turn of phrase because I've read these books on all of our presidents. People can see if they're watching on YouTube, some of them behind me. You, needless to say, read a, a ton of them. And you get to somebody like a James K. Polk who's buying and selling human beings in the White House. And that'll challenge you to, to think, well, what nice thing would I say about them? How do I find that mm -hmm. good thing? And I do always try to do that. Whenever I read about any president, I try to find something nice, something that they overcame, even something they failed at. And I think for President Carter, who you're just mentioning, for instance, people say, well, gosh, they, they kind of push him off that he said, I'll never lie to you. But to me, there's something to be said for saying the thing you know should be said, <laughs> saying the right thing, even if you don't live up to it all the time. At least, you know, uh, as you were saying, the right thing to say and what people should aspire to and qualities they should look for in a presidential candidate. So will readers of Mourning the Presidents come to understand 
different things, things that may seem outdated today about saluting the office, even if we couldn't stand the man who occupied it as they read your book. And maybe when somebody dies, every president has had somebody who, who didn't like them or a group or a faction of, of the people that didn't like them. So how do you hope mourning the president's speaks to that and maybe as a unifying factor and if somebody's really broken up over a president that well we didn't really care about they, they can they could find a way forward into understanding why this is important for everybody to have that catharsis even if obviously no president is is universally beloved yeah it's a great point i think i didn't set out to try and encourage people necessarily to like every president or to even look for the good in every president, but rather to explore what the presidency means to the American people, not not so much the person, but the office. It is a unique place in our civic life. It is the only individual that is, in theory, uh, elected by all citizens or, you know, indirectly, uh, it is, is voted for by all citizens it is the voice on the public stage. It is our representative internationally, and it has an unparalleled bully pulpit. And so the power of this office is extraordinary, and the decisions made by the people that hold it are sometimes unfathomable. But one of the things that I think we want people to think about is the memory of a president, the legacy of a president. These things are not set in stone. They are not concrete. They don't stay static. They are very much contested. They do evolve over time. And that is appropriate and right for a number of reasons. One, you know, more information comes to light as documents are declassified. Eisenhower is a great example of this. We didn't cover him in the chapter, but most people thought that by the end of his presidency, he was really old. He was kind of doddery. He wasn't really with it. He didn't you know, he was he wasn't really in control of the administration. And as documents became declassified, it became very clear that he was absolutely in control of everything. And accordingly, his reputation has risen. And so, you know, that's one that's one factor. Another factor is that for someone like Jefferson, a lot of voices were not included in the narrative about the mourning process and his legacy. The the voices of the enslaved and the emancipated from Monticello were not included in that process. And so we can't tell the full story unless we revise to incorporate these additional people. And finally, new generations, they they both have a fresh take because they are not as emotionally invested in, in presidents that people perhaps lived closer to, but they also ask new questions. They look at things in new ways. And that's great because that means that we're, you know, creative and we're thinking of things in a new way. And so that the process of legacy should continue to evolve, just as I think history should continue to evolve. And it doesn't mean that we're trying to erase or take down people, but rather we're just trying to continue to get to know them better. You said something there about new generations, and it brings me to a tweet that uh, came in late the night before we were scheduled to have this interview from Dr. David Head, who I interviewed about his book, a Crisis of Peace, George Washington, the Newburgh Conspiracy, and the Fate of the American Revolution. And it caught my eye because of that idea of young people who are a little separated from the presidents or, or anything, any of us, the presidents we didn't live through. They didn't mean as much to us because we didn't have them there day to day. And David Head said he was discussing with his daughter the order in which the presidents died. And he suggested that there be a children's version of mourning the presidents. So I figured I would put I would put you on the spot. Is there a chance? Because I think I agree that that's a, that would be a great idea to, especially when when a 
president dies and the kids are wondering what is all this about and it seems really strange i thought that that was an, an interesting format and i i hope that there's a chance is there a chance morning the presidents could somehow be made into a children's book well i haven't uh dipped my toe into children's or young adult literature yet but uh, i do think that a lot of these stories actually do belong in some sort of version for children because they're curious they see what's going on around them you know when when president carter does pass people will have the footage of the funeral on their televisions or their tablets or whatever devices they use and kids will see that and they will ask questions and for a lot of people funerals especially a presidential funeral are one of the first sort of political memories they do have and um it's it would be helpful i think to be able to explain that and provide a resource so if there are any children's editors listening out there and would like to reach out uh, i have lots to say and would be happy to to work with you it's kind of a fuzzy amorphous process in my brain at the moment but um if anyone wants to explain it and help out i'd be delighted well i'll definitely talk to some people that i have been fortunate to speak to and enjoy their books it is an art form all to itself so i I, I like that complete complete idea of completing a life and, and sharing it with young people. So I like that. And I like that you shared it here with us in Morning the Presidents as adults so we can get a better idea. It's so easy to focus on those big funerals and the big names, I think. And to your credit, you've mentioned even here a bunch of the ones we might not think about right away, like Garfield and McKinley, who, who die in office, and Zachary Taylor. Were there any of them that you think when when you had a contributor that came to you and said, I'd like to write about this, or you you thought of a story yourself that really jumped out at you and you were really glad that was included because it said something you didn't expect to find in their tribute when they died that, that added to the book something that you, you might not get from the really polished modern funerals, the ones that we all go to, the, the a lengthy, even old one like Abraham Lincoln's. But this obscure anecdote or moment or tradition really struck you as as a perfect moment to explain part of the larger story. Yeah, I, well, I think, you know, to a certain extent, all the chapters surprised me in some way. You know, one of the things about the Lincoln chapter that is so surprising is how uh, how much lack of unity there was during Lincoln's funeral, because, of course, Southerners didn't care about Lincoln's death. They were very happy to celebrate his death. And there was actually a cohort of Northern Democrats, the Copperheads, who did not mourn his death either. So that was a good reminder. But in terms of individuals that were less well-known, when uh, Dean Kotlowski introduced the Herbert Hoover chapter to us, we, we did call for submissions. And that was one of the ones that he made a really compelling case that this person deserves to be included because Herbert Hoover speaks to so many important cultural norms and cultural trends in our society. First, he, you know, is one of the presidents that I think uh, is is not well served by who follows him. Uh, it's really hard to measure up to FDR, and so that was you know certainly part of it. And he served at a very very dark moment in American history during the Great Depression. And despite his really luminous career prior to the presidency, and then all of his incredible efforts after the presidency, could never quite erase the stain that was left by his lack of action or his perceived lack of action during the Great Depression. And so he's one of the first presidents that does really have a lengthy post-presidential career, tries really hard to rewrite that record and doesn't really succeed. And so Nixon is another example of that, but I think a little bit of a better known example. 
And so we were really excited to include the, the Herbert Hooper chapter. I'm glad you mentioned Nixon because uh, I quoted recently in a column this idea that always stuck with me. And I was a relatively young person, I guess, younger than I am now, uh, certainly in 1991 when he passed away, uh, I believe it was. And so President Clinton comes and he says this, this really great line, not necessarily even just for Nixon, but that it's time to judge him on his whole record. And let's put that rancor behind us and let's let's find up the nation's wounds from Watergate. And I thought that that's something that, that really strikes me here in Mourning the Presidents is that there's that effort to look at them as just like us, which maybe even for the failed ones is even better because or the ones that fail on something, they all fail on some things. And I thought that that was also a long period of time where we didn't have mourning, wasn't it? So it, did, were you able to go into those? How did you resist the urge, I guess, is my question, to go back and, and get lost in some of these ones where we have so much documentation, especially a recent one, as you said, Bush 41 and Nixon, Reagan, these were all recent ones. How did you resist that and make sure to give fair service to all the presidents to give this full picture you bring your readers? Well, we had a couple of factors that we were really trying to keep balanced, and it did require a little bit of Tetris to figure out what the right, right, the right balance and the right order was. We wanted to have chronological balance. So a lot of historians, a lot of volumes, they might have a chapter or two on the early period, and then the bulk of their chapters or their contributions will be on the 20th century. And as an early Americanist, I do like to remind people that centuries existed prior to the 20th century, and it's pretty important to represent them. So we were determined to have several and at least try and have some balance between like the 18th and 19th and the 20th and 21st centuries. So that was the first factor. The second factor was we wanted to have a balance between well-known and lesser known names. So of course you're gonna have the big ones, Washington, Lincoln, Kennedy, FDR. Uh, we wanted to include George H.W. Bush because he was the, the most recent and the one that had sort of prompted this project. And then we kind of set about trying to fill in some gaps in between and, and who would be interesting, who would be you know less thought of, who would provide representation as well as representation in terms of different aspects of the stories. So we wanted to make sure that there were people who were talking about how race and family and political parties shape how we think about these individuals and not just, you know, what their legacy says. And so I think that all of those things contributed to force us to stay away from just the big ones, uh, just the ones that you might expect. You mentioned that early American period, and I, I love that. I love that about Morning the Presidents, but you're, you're writing in general, including an imperfect union, your, your newsletter is that you remind us of that past. What a great way to put it. There were centuries before this one or before the last one, before <laughs> the 20th. But uh, there were so many traditions back then and the way we mourn as people changes over time. And having written this book, are there things that we carry over to this day that maybe people will spot in a modern presidential funeral? You mentioned Zachary Taylor, and it made me think of him and Reagan and the boots on backwards uh, and the riderless horse, for example. That's a, that's an old style way of, of remembering somebody. Are, are there any of those things that, may, that maybe you like to point out and you say, oh, that comes from way back when? And people will get that from mourning the presidents and maybe we'll give them a little bit of comfort as they watch. Sure. Well, I think the, the concept is of the funeral as a time to come together certainly is a timeless experience and I think has real value. 
the depending on you know as we move forward what the ceremonies look like depending on the materials used it, it's pretty common for a president to lie in state now at the at the capitol and some presidents have used and have borrowed uh the oh gosh i can never pronounce this word the kafka is that how you say it the it's the thing the thing that the coffin stands on yeah um I, kennedy I can't either kennedy. so now that you mentioned <laughs> this is what happens when we read too many words it's and we don't true. get out with it's not something that comes up in casual conversation so i, I agree it's, it's a hard true. One. <laughs> um yeah uh yeah you'd be there are a number of words that i go to say for the first time and i'm like oh man i've written that so many times then i try and say it out loud and it does not work so uh, that's one of them. Um, so Kennedy borrowed Lincoln's like the physical item. Um, usually the the representation of some sort of uh, military representation, if especially if the person has served. So George H.W. Bush, of course, had served. Carter has served. And so I suspect that the military would play a role in paying their respects, whether it's uh, military jets flying overhead, the, the role of um, a military escort, things like that. And that that is, I think, common and also a very human thing, because anyone who has had a family member who has served in the military, that is often also present at their service. So it, I think is a through line from presidents being just like us. And then the last piece, and we, we kind of started with this, but it's very normal for humans to, when someone dies, to, to say all the good things and maybe ignore some of the bad things. And we've all been to those funerals where I'm like, doesn't really sound like the person I know. Um, and, and, you know, we do that for the family. We do that to pay respects. We do that for a lot of human reasons, but it's very important that we distinguish between mourning and then like long-term historical legacy, because mourning is a more immediate process. Long-term historical legacy, while I don't think it can ever be perfectly objective, humans are not perfectly objective creatures, we can be a little bit more analytical. We can be a little bit more serious and even-handed in our in our analysis and our exploration. And so, we shouldn't expect the mourning process to be a perfect encapsulation of the entire record. And we should not expect that it that would stay the same over time. And that's okay. And that's fine. And that's right. And we just have to distinguish between the two. And okay to say nice things, I think, or focus on the positive and get to those biographies later. And I, I hope in, in the case of uh, President Carter, certainly and other presidents that we've had. So I, it just this book helps us realize that that's a, a perfectly normal item. And we don't have to. I mean, even when even when First Lady Barbara Bush passed away, there were some real nasty things said about her. And I think this book helps us get back to encouraging people to look at the full picture of somebody's life and understand all the time isn't the time to say whatever you think and that this is a very specific cathartic process for the nation yeah absolutely and and that it's not the only time that one can say something so you know i i think that sometimes people feel like if they don't also share the good bad and ugly at this time then they will never have the opportunity to do so again and that's not how analysis that's not how history that's not how scholarship works it is of course going to be an ongoing process and they're going to be more than just one snippet uh for people to to share i want to close with a question that you write about in mourning the presidents or something that you say i'll quote you back to yourself which is a, an excellent thing to be able to do to an author you write quote what made reagan's funeral distinctive was that it spanned the country and you liken it to Lincoln's, and I'm reminded of the train journey also taken by William McKinley. Trains were the style back then for doing this, and 
there's this outpouring of, of love for certainly for McKinley. You mentioned how people protested Lincoln's funeral. And after McKinley's assassinated, you have Confederate soldiers, former Confederate soldiers lining the tracks to, to pay their respects, which I, I find an a really nice bookend. It shows a little bit of the bounding up of our nation's wounds, although often this was done at the expense of the freedmen, people you mentioned, voices being eliminated. But we could do better today. It's a nice thing. But my question is, there's this outpouring of what you call the American family, and it surprised a lot of people when the 40th president, Ronald Reagan, passed away. What other chief executives might have liked to have seen a similar outpouring of affection? And why would you like to see people pick up this book who are in charge of planning this as well as people at home? Why should everybody pick up a copy here of Mourning the President so they can play their part in mourning a president and remembering their legacy and understanding this important part of American culture. Well, one that we didn't really talk about, but I think would have really appreciated that sort of cohesion was Ulysses S. Grant. And he did actually have, like McKinley, he had Confederate representation at his funeral. But I think that he viewed his greatest legacy as preserving the nation as a rule of law. And so he would have liked to have seen the entire nation really come together as best as we can tell. Grant's a little hard to get to know, but um, I think that that is a, is a fair statement. I think this book allows people to go beyond the trappings of the funeral and understand what that experience means to people and the role that it, it should play in American culture, the, the role that these common and shared experiences can play in, in shaping our understanding of, of who we are, of where we are as a nation, of where we've come from and where we might choose to go. It is very much a, a process and, and a part of our American story. And um, I think it, it can be a very positive one, but also one that we should think about analytically and we shouldn't just accept as this is the way it's always been done because I think this book shows that there is always evolution and that is that is great. And that is how it, how the story should be. Well, I love that as a final note to say, we all have a piece of those presidents. Something also going back to George Washington, where you started the interview saying that everyone said, sorry, you're great, but we're going to, we're going to say that you're great in our own <laughs> way. And the, I, I just love that. And I think it's so befitting a Republican and a, a Republic. I think it's so befitting a Republic and Washington's legacy that people were willing to say, ah, sorry, you, you belong to us. And we're going to use the part of you that belongs to us. And we're going to remember and celebrate that part of you. And we may overdo it, but so what? In, in the year 2023, people will forgive us for that. I do. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Lindsay Shavinsky, and talking about Mourning the Presidents. This has been a really special examination of an important part of how our republic works. It's been overlooked, but overlooked no more, thanks to you and the contributors to your book. I wish you the best of luck with it, and I look forward to that next one. And we'll talk about getting a children's version of it out there soon. That sounds great. Thank you so much again for having me. I really appreciate it. Again, the book is Mourning the Presidents, Loss and Legacy in American Culture. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Dr. Lindsay Stravinsky for joining us taking time out of that busy schedule that you heard about when I described all of the things that she has going, all of her media appearances, to try to share some really great history with us. It's a real service, not just to all of us as readers, but to the Republic. 
I appreciate her helping us understand the life of our American experiment through the deaths of its leaders. Visit our guests across social media platforms or online at lindsayshervinsky.com where you can subscribe to that email newsletter of hers called Imperfect Union. We will link to all of those spots, all of her social media at the historyauthor.com page for this episode that will include our previous interview with Dr. Shervinsky about her book, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the creation of an American institution. Special thanks to Louis Pacone for submitting his video question. You could catch our three interviews together about his books. Those are Grant's Tomb, The Epic Death of Ulysses S. Grant, and The Making of an American Pantheon. That one is a video interview, and so you can watch that. I have some great pictures in there. I actually managed to stump the author with a picture that he had never seen before. So when that happens, I'm always very happy. His other interviews with me were audio only. Those are The President is Dead, The Extraordinary Stories of the Presidential Deaths, Final Days, Burials, and Beyond, plus the bookending volume, Where the Presidents Were Born, The History and Preservation of the Presidential Birthplaces. If you enjoyed watching this conversation or my conversation with Louis Pacone or my previous one with Dr. Shavinsky, please do subscribe at our YouTube channel for future journeys in the Wayback Machine. And visit HistoryAuthor.com to find my social media accounts, as well as over 250 interviews with authors you're sure to enjoy. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio or wherever you enjoyed this journey into yesterday. Until that next trip into the past together, on behalf of Dr. Lindsay Shervinsky, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.